This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, it's been another kind of catastrophic week in Palestine and in the area. In the last week since we have broadcasted our last show, Israel has bombed Syria, has bombed Lebanon, has bombed Gaza, has continued to kill Palestinian civilians. And in a rather kind of um, Islamophobic and racist attack on religious worshipers, uh, invaded the Al-Aqsa Mosque and arrested Palestinian worshipers during Ramadan. It, incredibly egregious and uh, kind of, you know, finally getting worldwide condemnation for, for their religious persecution, in addition to denying Christian Palestinians the opportunity to uh, religiously practice their freedom in Jerusalem. So it's been a very difficult time, obviously, in Palestine. Uh, the apartheid state continues to ratchet up things. Things are very chaotic right now. And in some ways, the media representation of what's happening in Palestine continues to be kind of embarrassing, to say the least, and very disgusting in terms of missing all the big picture and highlighting the so-called democracy protests. But we're going to talk all about that. We're going to talk about the attacks on worshipers at Al-Aqsa, the 75th anniversary of the Deir Yassin massacre that uh, Israel committed against Palestinian civilians. We're going to also talk about APAC's attempt to cultivate, if you will, which is another nice way of saying control, Democrats now. They're going after Democrats to get them to swing in favor of voting for uh, the apartheid state. So we're going to cover all of that, obviously. There's a lot to cover. But before we do that, we're going to watch an interview you did with a, a Jewish-Israeli activist and co-founder of Boycott Within. That's uh, Rani Barkan. He's going to be talking about the upcoming trial at the Bristol Crown Court for the allegedly breaking into Elbit Systems headquarters in the UK. It's a very important case. We're going to watch this interview that you did with uh, Ronnie Barkham. That's right, Jess. Let's watch uh, Ronnie. Last June, nine activists from Palestine Action pleaded not guilty to charges of criminal damage and burglary at Bristol Crown Court in the UK. Their charges follow a direct action taken at the Bristol headquarters of Israel's largest arms company, to commemorate Nakba Day on the 15th of May 2022. The nine activists broke into Albert's uh, Bristol headquarters and barricaded themselves there. Two activists, uh, Rani Barkan and Stavit Sinai, who are both foreign nationals, were imprisoned since uh, action and were granted uh, bail at the plea hearing. Their conditions for bail involve surrendering their Israeli passports a 10 p.m. curfew, electronic tag, and non-association with their co-defendants. One of the defendants, Rani Barkan, is joining us on Arab Talk. He's a longtime Jewish-Israeli activist and math teacher and the co-founder of Boycott from Within. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Rani. Hi, Jamal. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with your upcoming trial. I know that you've been restricted to what you can comment on. So give us an update on the trial, when it's uh, going to be taking place. So I look forward to the trial. It will take place in Bristol, Crown Court, 
uh, on the 17th of April. Everyone is welcome. So that is in a couple of weeks from now. And I expect it to be uh, an interesting trial. I, I mean, I will not go too much into the details other than, you know, you mentioned Bok Park. Basically, um, there have been ongoing demonstrations uh, across the UK for the past couple of years by a group called Paths and Action. Uh, due to sustained uh, demonstrations and direct actions, over the 10 sites, they're owned by Elbit uh, Systems, which is Israel's largest arms manufacturer. It used to have 10 sites in the UK. Two of them have been permanently shut down since due to these sustained actions. So I took part in such an action uh, against the Elbit headquarters in Bristol. That was on Nakba Day last year. We have to remember that the Nakba is not only an historical event, it is an ongoing process whereby all these tools technological tools are key in upkeeping and maintaining this ongoing process of the Nakba against Palestinians, especially when we talk about Gaza. Gaza was built as a concentration camp in 1948 to house these surplus human beings, those who have been expelled from the Nakba region. Uh, and ever since they are there caged and not allowed to go back to their home. And I will only refer to the recent a great march of return uh, that took place in Gaza, which was not only against the criminal and barbaric siege there, but also against for their rights to return to their homes. And they are being controlled 24 seven uh, by Elbit drones that are hovering overhead and bombing, bombing them once in a while uh, by unmanned uh, land vehicles that are controlling them, which are fitted with uh, machine guns and other types of uh, technology, again, all Elbit made and on and on. This is this is how the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing, and what amount of crimes against humanity, apartheid, and genocide are being carried out. Talk in general. In general, uh, uh, what does Palestine Action's mission and why it's targeting the Israeli weapons manufacturer uh, Elbit? Elbit system, uh, as mentioned, is the Israel's largest uh, arms manufacturer, and it is involved in all of these horrible crimes that I have mentioned, which amount to crimes against humanity. It is not even just involved uh, as a subsidiary or as a, like, by proxy. They are actively on the ground taking part in these crimes. When we talk, I mean, to the extent where during the 51 days of assault on Gaza, called Protective Edge in 2014, uh, they have introduced to the so-called war scene a premature drone, the Hermes 900. Uh, and that uh, drone was key in uh, the bombing of Gaza during these 51 days where 551 children were murdered, where 89 families have been completely obliterated. Uh, and over the course of these 51 days, they introduced a drone that was not yet market ready. And they make it made it marketable over the course of this so-called war. Now, Elbit personnel were on the ground along with the Israeli Air Force, taking every every takeoff and every landing. They were the ones flying the drones, while the Air Force crew were the ones dropping the bombs. So let's move uh, to what's happening in Tel Aviv, uh, close to where to where you grew up in uh, Ranana. Do you see something good coming out from these demonstrations? I think it is a really interesting phenomenon. And not because of what we hear in the news, not because of this or that political discussion, 
but we have to look at it in a whole other lens, which is that this is this whole psychological issue. There are two, there are two groups with very different views about life and about their own identity. And this Netanyahu government, which is more explicit than any, any other in the past. Uh, has basically eroded or took away this veneer of normality and so-called democracy and 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 on and on this so-called liberalism that never existed in Israel, but there was always this veneer, this this cover uh, that people could you know could basically shield themselves from actually looking at the real issues at hand. And and this new government is much more explicit and much more honest about their Zionism. And that basically places all the others in the corner and, and they are struggling. All those, the masses who are struggling at the moment against the Netanyahu regime and specifically against uh, the appointment of Bentville. Right now, uh, today, there was a hearing in the Israeli Supreme Court about uh, challenging the appointment of Bentville. He represented himself, by the way, at the Supreme Court. So those who are challenging the Bengbir and Netanyahu regime and those who are demonstrating out on the streets, they are demonstrating because they are not willing to admit the real reality, the reality of what the Zionist race state is all about. They would like to maintain this facade of normality, this facade of liberalism, and that new regime just throws all of that away. So I, you know, I made in the past a table comparing the Zionist propaganda with the reality. And the Zionist propaganda, which you hear all the time on Harvard's newspaper and 972 magazine and so on, this liberal Zionist propaganda, I mean, uh, talks about uh, Israel versus Palestine. It talks about the occupation of 67, not about the occupation of 48. It talks about, you know, as if, as if, if we only tweak the situation, if we only overcome the occupation, that occupation of 67, then things would finally become better for Palestinians, but it is not like that. The issue is not does not revolve around 67, it revolves around 48. It is not about tweaking the situation, it is about abolishing a system of racial domination. It is, and, and, and the only way to move forward, the only way to really have democracy and equality is to abolish a system of racial uh, supremacy and racial domination. Uh, before we get to uh, deep into this, uh, you, you mentioned that the new Netanyahu's government, uh, starting with Ben Gvir and uh, also Smotrich, we didn't talk about him. Who are these guys, and how have they risen to power so fast? You know, all of a sudden, boom, they're in the news every day uh, for people in the West. I'm not talking about in 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 Palestine. Uh, no one has heard of them before. They were known all along in Israel, just that maybe they haven't risen to power as much, but they they are figures that can't be known, and they were regarded as the extremists. And what we see over the past couple of decades is that the extreme, what was regarded as, as far-right discourse in Israel is becoming more and more normalized and mainstream. So if you remember, there were all these uh, who were struggling for the rebuilding of the temple, the third temple, for example, really crazy zealots and so on. And they have put together a student groups in different campuses. They have had uh, 
ministers who were supporting them all along, like kind of, they have built up this um, support. And this type of discourse, which is, you could say that it is more uh, founded in religious uh, sentiment uh, or pseudo-religious. It's uh, it's about, you know, the, the again, the building of the third temple and things like that. And and these this discourse has become more and more um, accepted in the mainstream. Uh, you can also see that in the media in Israel, uh, the the latest channel, Channel 14, was basically uh, established as a, let's say a far right channel, but it has become much much more mainstream and and it gets more and more popularity. And I think that those figures uh, in Israel were known all along. But their language has become more and more mainstream over the time. So they were regarded as far right. They were there even in the Knesset. If you remember Moshe Feitling, who was deputy speaker of the Knesset, right, is, uh, who takes inspiration from uh, people like Jabotinsky and so on. You had Mikhail Ben-Ari, who is uh, the student of Kahana. He was in the Knesset. They were much more honest about their races, about their racism, about their Zionism. Uh, but they were still regarded as kind of a fringe movement within uh, the parliament. Now they have become much more mainstream, but this is a process that we have been seeing over the past couple of decades, where, for example, uh, those who were talking about the uh, rebuilding of the Third Temple, religious fundamentalists, we just we should explain the rebuilding the third temple means the destruction of Al Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock. Destruction of Al Aqsa and rebuilding of the third Jewish temple uh, on top of it. Exactly, and, and it is um, yeah. These are real uh, extremists who are supporting it and uh, with very weird views. But they have established uh, student groups across uh, the country. Uh, and their discourse has become more and more mainstream, which is crazy in itself. You have uh, leading ministers from also past governments who have been supporting them all along. Now, those who I mentioned before, Feiglin and uh, Ben Ali, I think it's very important to talk about their discourse because Feiglin says, again, uh, kind of disregarding this language of propaganda, Feiglin says, what is the difference between uh, the city of Gaza and the city of Jaffa, Jaffa, as he calls it. He says the only difference is 19 years. Whatever we did to Jaffa, we have to do to Gaza. He says both are Jewish towns on the Mediterranean Sea. This is how he sees it. And the people who are living in Gaza should not be there. They should, we should just, they should quit silently or like, or, or agree to be subjugated. And if they raise their, their head, we will make them leave. People like Mikhail Ben Ali that I mentioned, when there was a discussion about the anti-BDS law that was, uh, they wanted to legislate an anti-BDS law in the Knesset uh, over a decade ago. Uh, and there was a heated discussion there. Ben Ali uh, stood on the, at the podium and he said, let me read to you. You're talking all the time about settlements, settlements, you know, and they mean the West Bank settlements. And he is himself a settler. He says, I never evicted any Palestinian from my home, from my land. I, I, there was no Palestinian village or town uh, where my house sits today. But let me read you a list of settlements. And then he starts alphabetically and he goes through all this list of different kibbutzim and different 
uh, towns inside 48, inside what is regarded as Israel proper. These are the actual settlements. They are built literally on top of an elite expense of Palestinians who have been ex expelled from there. So these voices were all along, even in the Knesset, but now they have become the mainstream. And that is a big issue for those who still want to point the finger at the settlements in the West Bank. Those who want to point the finger at the situation in the West Bank and say, ah, this is, this is the trouble, this is the problem that we have to deal with, not the actual foundational element of the Zionist state, which was built on racial supremacy and ethnic cleansing. So um, the Israeli ca cabinet has recently approved Ben Gavir's so-called National Guard plan. Critics uh, are warning uh, that this can be used, uh, or it's about 2,000 uh, uh, forces, members of the force, will be used specifically against uh, Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel and uh, anti-government uh, demonstrators. Uh, I mean, why did, what, why did Netanyahu succumb to such a thing to really make making you know uh, Ben Gavir more powerful than before? I think that the question that bothers me is why did Netanyahu succumb to the possibility of Ben Gavir taking over Netanyahu's role? Uh, so, because Netanyahu is known to expunge anyone who is who stands in his way, who, who is some sort of a rival for his popularity. Um, so, I think that uh, Netanyahu thinks, I'm, I'm just guessing here, that he can get more popularity at the moment by uh, promoting Ben Beers. Also, when you say, when you say popularity, when you say popularity, obviously like half the country is demonstrating against him. So when you mention gaining the popularity, uh, popularity with the Kahanists, popularity with the settlers, I mean, who, who, whose popularity is he seeking? It's, it's an, look, it's an interesting phenomenon and goes back to what I said about how people conceive themselves. Uh, in Israel. It has nothing to do with Palestinians and it has nothing to do whatsoever with what we regard as democratic values. It has to do with those who are Zionist and unashamed of their racism, which is the entirety of the Netanyahu government, and those who are Zionist and feel that they are liberal and democratic and so on and want to play a pseudo-democratic game. And there are clear distinctions between the two. And those who are Zionist and supposedly liberal and democratic, uh, they are not, they're inconsistent in their views and it, they are not liked by the other ones, the right wing, because they can see through their lies. Okay, the right wing can see through the lies of the so-called democratic uh, tendencies, which are have nothing to do with democracy and nothing to do with equality. So you have kind of this schism and and those who are demonstrating are really demonstrating to save their state. They, for, as far as they are concerned, they are demonstrating to save their cherished, basically, their La La Land reality of what of the place they live in. But they know that if Netanyahu carries on with his mission, the whole nature, the whole character of that state will change. They will no longer be able to tell themselves that they live in such a democracy. So when I talk about popularity, Netanyahu does not, there is some divide that cannot be 
overcome, that cannot be bridged. This two, these two notions uh, of whether one lives in a so-called liberal democracy or whether one is simply, you know, a Zionist and says this is ours and uh, this is all ours. Uh, and I think that this this cannot be uh, this divide cannot be overcome. So when I talk about popularity, I'm talking about uh, the risk. And I think there Netanyahu is gaining more and more popularity. So well, there is a new a new poll that shows that Israelis prefer Gantz. This was released, I think, uh, last week that they prefer Gantz than Netanyahu uh, as a prime minister in a head-to-head -head match. Uh, my, my first question is, is there a difference between the two? Also, um, in is this poll accurate? That's the other thing. Someone had written that the Israeli left, represented by Gantz, always wins in polls, but loses in elections. Yeah. Uh, first of all, let's talk about Gantz. Gantz is known uh, to have said, uh, to have talked about the miracle of uh, turning blood into money. Wow. Okay, this is what this is what he talked about uh, uh, about the way that Israel, the Israeli army, is acting in Gaza, and where they teach the world about this miracle of turning blood into money. And um, and uh, he says that uh, in an excellent film called The Lab, Yotam uh, Feldman's film. About how uh, basically Israeli the arms industry is is the most uh, profitable industry in Israel, and uh, so so this is what Gantz stands for. Um, why do these so-called liberals support Gantz? Because it's not about Palestinians; it's about everything else. His politics is that which which still tries to maintain this uh, pseudo-liberal democratic uh, character of Israel. Uh, I would argue with the uh, uh, with the poll, though. I would argue with the the question of popularity. You said that maybe uh, the polls say one thing, but uh, the elections say something very different. And we have seen, you know, how these elections happen over and over again. Why? Because there is pretty much a fifty-fifty mark between those two types of Zionists. Okay, let's forget about political parties. It's irrelevant. There are two types of Zionists. One are racist and proud of it. The others want to feel that they live in a democracy. And they are fighting, and there's about a 50-50 mark. And I said that the, the, I think you cannot really bridge between the two factions here. So Gantz represents one of them, even though he is very much supportive of bombing Gaza, and Netanyahu represents the other. And, and uh, I, I think my perception, my subjective perception, of course, is that uh, over time, the overt Zionists, the racist Zionists, are becoming a more and more popular. And you see that with the youth. You see, uh, you know, there is an iconic uh, high school in, in Tel Aviv, which is known to quite well predict uh, the next elections. They take polls there, and they are quite, uh, they're probably better pollsters than uh, the rest. And uh, I know that when Ben Beer uh, was there before the election, he was received with standing ovation, and they loved him there. Wow. So I would say that the youngsters, even in so-called liberal Tel Aviv, 
are more inclined to support than to oppose them. This is very disappointing um, because I was mentioned um, uh, last week during the anti-government demonstration demonstrations. Uh, Mesar vote uh, youth activists burned conscription warrants. They refused to serve the occupation and apartheid. And I thought this was encouraging, but you're saying the opposite. Yes, you see, there are French groups like Mesalvot, which great. I mean, I'm all in favor of conscientious objectors. I, I myself, a conscientious objector. I, I've devoted many years to support other conscientious objectors. But we are, you know, saying that there is a conscientious objector movement. For example, that is a lie in itself. There's no movement. There's a handful of activists. We we all know each other by name. So, so the fact that it grows from ten to twelve, it doesn't mean that the movement is growing. It just means that there are a couple more people on board. So, uh, also, I know that uh, you know I've seen some articles on Nine Seven Two magazine where they love to embellish uh, these fringe uh, movements, and I support these fringe movements, but they are no more than fringe. Um, you know, trying to portray them as bigger than than they actually are. So, I know that there are some who actually. Uh, their slogan is, there's no democracy with apartheid. And I even saw some uh, uh, banners saying uh, democracy, I don't know what they were saying exactly, but something like uh, democracy from the river to the sea, which is a banner that I was holding, by the way, 12 years ago during the demonstrations. If you remember, there were, uh, for the Arab Spring, there were also demonstrations in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. And again, there were masses on the street, totally apolitical, uh, they were mostly against Netanyahu, um, but not supporting uh, anything of substance. And there was a fringe group that I belonged to that we were trying to radicalize that movement. Uh, and it's true that we managed to radicalize it to a certain degree. And, you know, even that uh, it doesn't matter right now, but like kind of changing the discourse a little bit. But so some people from that movement, uh, the mass movement also, personally, their views have transformed over time because they saw those other who were more radical. But the bulk of it, they didn't want any such political discussions. They didn't want to involve Palestinians. They didn't want to discuss how do we actually reach democracy and equality. They only wanted to preserve uh, their cherished base state with this facade of liberal democracy. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that the situation is quite similar. It is true that the numbers, there's massive amount of people on the streets, and that is quite encouraging. It is encouraging because there may be a chance that the Netanyahu government will be toppled because of that. They're already talking about the serious um, effect that this thing will have, the, the so-called democratic, uh, the so-called judicial uh, how is it called in English? Judicial uh, reform. Uh, they're saying that it will have an, an impact on the economy. Uh, at least, they say, 14 billion uh, shekels uh, a year for the next three years. They say that it could even amount to 48. And I remember the number, 48 billion shekels a year for the next years. Um, so why? Because, because of the status of Israel around the world, because that there is going to be a brain drain that people will leave to other places, especially obviously the more skilled, the high tech and so on. Other companies will not want to invest in Israel because of, again, the changing image of that state. And I am in favor of all of that. I am in favor of transforming and, it's, and 
pointing the finger at what the race state really is all about. So is this, do these demonstrations have some important role? Yes, they do. Do they seek democracy? No, they don't. Well, let's talk then about the the elephant in, in the room, apartheid, uh, which these demonstrations don't address as as you've uh, as you have articulated here israel's apologists uh, deny that apartheid exists in in israel despite all the evidence provided by international human rights organizations like human rights watch amnesty international israel's own uh, human rights organization betselem uh, and and others, how did you reach uh, this conclusion yourself that Israel is an apartheid state? So we have to be very clear about what we mean by apartheid in the Zionist race state. It was built as a race state. It was built in an apart- as an apartheid state. It is not only about the West Bank and Gaza, where the situation is unbearable. It's horrible. And there's clear apartheid, especially if you go to Hebron, Khalil, for example. It's very clear. You have different everything. This elements of what's called petty apartheid, which existed a lot in South Africa, where you have segregated everything. So yes, there is clear case of apartheid in the West Bank, where you even have two different legal systems for people there based on their ethnicity. And then again, that's not the main part of apartheid. The most part of apartheid is what is happening inside what is regarded as Israel proper, or what we call Palestine Quartier, and especially so where it affects the refugees meaning those who are in forced exile for the past seven decades. So half of the Palestinian population are not even allowed to live on their land. They have been forcefully exiled and to this day are maintained in this position, denied the right to go back home for one and only one reason, because they belong to the wrong racial ethnic category. And everything about the foundation of the Zionist race state is about that, is about denying those who have been expelled from there to ever come back and denied equal equal standing from everyone who remained on their land. This is how it was founded. This is how Israeli apartheid was founded, and it is very well defined in the law. This is why I define myself, or I, call, I, I, I present myself, as a privileged Israeli Jew. Not because I regard myself as Israeli or Jewish, because this is my legal status in the Zionist state. My citizenship is Israeli, my nationality is quote-unquote Jewish, nothing to do with religion, everything to do with supremacy according to the Zionist state. This is, and this is how they make the distinction between the people who are the privileged and have rights to those who are underprivileged and are denied rights. So 7 million people among the privileged group control the lives of another 14 million people, half of which are in forced exile for the past seven decades. This is the situation. This is why there is apartheid. And I can go on and on and explain in detail all the mechanisms of apartheid. But it is not only in the West Bank and Gaza. Another thing that I challenge is this whole false terminology of referring to it as Jewish supremacy. I very, I'm very much opposed to this false term and this misleading and dangerous term of Jewish supremacy. It is racial, ethnic supremacy. You can call it white supremacy if you like, because it fits, you know, whiteness is a construct. It fits into the whole notion of white supremacy. Um, it is definitely not what I'd call Jewish supremacy. The Zionist state uses and abuses Judaism to justify itself, and it uses the term Jewish, like I said, to say that I have my nationality is quote-unquote Jewish. Not because of religion. They also have, by the way, another category called religion, 
where they define their population. So they have citizenship, nationality, and religion defined for each and every person. But the nationality, quote-unquote, Jewish, is the most important part because in the law, it says if Y, if X has nationality equals Jewish, then, you know, they are entitled to the right of return, the, the law of return, and, and things like that, and all the other privileges that uh, follow. So I challenge the term Jewish uh, supremacy. I challenge many of those uh, apartheid reports, which are very, very misleading or limiting in their scope of apartheid, because they only speak about, or mostly speak about, what is happening in the West Bank and Gaza. That includes the Tsena report. That includes the horrible Yeshdin report, which is uh, could have just as well been written by uh, the Israeli foreign ministry because it is all about justifying what is happening inside Israel proper. And also the Human Rights Watch report, which they have, to their credit, they have done the work. They are just trying to uh, minimize the apartheid within 48 and only focus on the apartheid in 67. So if you are reading the Human Rights Watch report and you want to get a sense of Israeli apartheid, just read it backwards. Every chapter, start from the bottom and read to the top. Then you'll get a better sense of apartheid. But in their infographic, for example, they show a situation between 7 million Israelis and 7 million Palestinians. And just conveniently erase all the face of the earth and other 7 million Palestinians who are in forced exile, refugees. That is absolutely unacceptable. So, so there are a few good reports, the UN report on apartheid, the Amnesty report, and the latest Al-Hat report. These are the ones that we'll refer to when speaking about Israeli apartheid. Rani Barkan, um, thank you for coming on Arab Talk, and I want to wish you the best of luck in your upcoming trial, and definitely we want to hear, hopefully, the good news uh, that... Uh, well, well, we'll wait and see so we can congratulate you uh, again in, in person. So much. And I'm looking forward to the trial. Uh, please keep posted. That's the voice and the face of Rani Barkan. He's the uh, uh, co-founder of Boycott Within, discussing the upcoming trial at the Brist Bristol Crown Court for the alleged breaking into Elbit Systems. It seems like Jamal the anti-Zionist protesters in UK are extremely active based on what Ronnie is saying. But, you know, this trial could have very significant consequences for the movement in the United Kingdom. Well, uh, other trials uh, have gone through and actually uh, the activists were exonerated. So hopefully Ronnie and others will be exonerated. I mean, think about it, Jess. This is Israel's largest weapons manufacturer. I mean, right. these weapons, and they are manufacturing these on in the UK. They also manufacture these weapons elsewhere and partner with other weapons manufacturers to do what? They manufacture drones, drones that they use to kill Palestinians in Gaza and, and other weapons. And so these are activists. And as you've mentioned earlier, Rani is a Jewish Israeli. Uh, he's the co-founder of uh, of. Um, boycott from within, and and uh, and he and others uh, go from, I guess, uh, factories to uh, to other factories to disrupt their production, and uh, and highlight the, the. I mean, obviously, the the main reason is to highlight uh, and bring media and attention to to these manufacturers who happen to be sometimes in a lovely 
uh, you know, picturesque outside a picturesque town in the UK or an outside right. another town somewhere else in Europe. And no one knows what they're doing behind these brick walls. They right. are creating killing machines. And so uh, kudos to him. He also talked about the makeup of Israel's new fascist government uh, which and, and its plans to expand the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestinians. So moving on, of course, to the big story this week, at least uh, for us, I don't know, for others, and how it was interpreted, you said something very important, which is how the media covered it, you know. But just to kind of maybe... Uh, Break it down a little bit, uh, the, which is, you know, the attacks of um, Israeli um, border police on Palestinian worshippers following the Taraweeh night prayers. The, and, and it's important to explain this because the Hasbaristas and their surrogates in, in the Western media try to say that these, uh, you know, the Palestinians were hiding in in these mosques and and they're hiding weapons and and trying to disrupt things. And why are they staying late at night? Like now, (laughs) they want to lecture basically Muslims how to pray, right? Right. Why are you praying at night? Right. And then, I don't know if you saw this video, but then, then when they take a break and you see them outside the mosque playing football, they put this video, they put a video, you know, shot from an Israeli drone saying, look, they're desecrating the mosque. They're not there to, pl- to pray. They're playing football, right? I mean, I mean, they, they can't make up their mind. Are they there to disrupt things and hide weapons or are they there to entertain themselves or are they there to, to pray? And, you know, uh, I grew up uh, growing to... Uh, a Catholic school, and we had a church and everything, and we used to play outside the church all the time. All the kids, you know, I mean, well, of so. course, you play in any open courtyard <laughs> in in Jerusalem, Jamal. Where, where it doesn't matter. Whenever yeah. the you know space is at a premium, and you play football in any open courtyard. Come on. So what the media does not explain is that after Muslims fast from sunrise to to sundown, and then they break their fast. Many of them go to mosques, and they do two things. One of them is Salat al-Taraweeh, which is that's the prayer after in the evening prayer. And then there is something else called Tikaf, uh, uh, which is non-mandatory, but a religious act that is common during Ramadan and involves staying inside mosques overnight to pray, reflect, and, and recite the Quran. Right. And and so now the Israelis, every single year, I mean, aside, I didn't even get started that they prevent a large segment of the population from going there because they put checkpoints and, and harass men under the age of 40 and prevent them from going there. But anyway, those who make it there, they stay, some of them stay overnight, some of them stay overnight to pray the dawn prayer and so forth. And that's the Atikaf, which is basically spending that evening in spirituality and prayer. And now we have people from whether Israelis or, 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 or other media outlets saying, yeah, why are they staying in the mosque? They shouldn't be staying in the mosque. And they want to control, basically, who goes in and who comes out. Well, well Jamal, you know, that, that's a really great uh, explanation 
and description of, of, of what happened. But let's keep in mind, the uh, Border Patrol invaded, harassed, and uh, tried to interrupt religious prayers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest site in Islam in Jerusalem, almost every single night of, of Ramadan. They went in there, they, des- they desecrated uh, the Al-Aqsa, they were the ones that went in. And I just want to, you know, you, you tweeted this amazing picture, and I hope many of our viewers uh, and listeners got a chance to see this. Palestinian men face down, handcuffed behind their back, in the middle of Al-Aqsa Mosque, during the middle of Ramadan, attempting to exercise their, their uh, right to pray uh, in Al-Aqsa Mosque. It is an incredible and extraordinary provocation provocation Jamal and how how are how how is the media portraying this this is the so-called democracy this great democracy in the Middle East the apartheid state arresting and harassing worshipers during one of the during the holiest month for Muslims all over the world in the third holiest site what what the coverage was abysmal Jamal I didn't see that picture of the young Palestinian men being held face down, handcuffed behind their backs in the middle of a mosque. That wasn't on the mainstream media here. That wasn't what was portrayed. It was protecting the, uh, uh, I don't know what, protecting what, Jamal, but uh, the mainstream well, media seems to have missed this one again. Well, one word describes it is disgusting. And another word that they use time and time again is clashes. Clashes yeah. happened clashes. like clashes, like between what clashes between two armies, clashes between two factions. I don't well, know. Well, now it's it's clashes between worshippers and military. What there worshippers? It's, it's a one-sided clashes. When you go and invade right. a mosque with full gear and and shoot rubber bullets and and tear gas and and uh, sound uh, explosives, sound grenades, right? And and I have to say, and they don't even explain the motives. For example, the clashes on a tu- that Tuesday, the infamous Tuesday. Why did it happen? Because early on Wednesday morning, Israeli forces. I'm I'm sorry, it was early in the morning on Wednesday. It started in the evening, and this time they wanted to do it. They no one told you why, because they wanted to get rid of all the Muslims. At, at Al-Aqsa in order to pave the way for Israeli settler incursions which began at 7 a.m. because right. they provide protection to them. So they wanted to empty out the mosque. This is this is an Islamic mosque uh, in the midst of Ramadan. The worshippers are like basically so, all over the place. They wanted to empty it by force. So you had groups... And, and I named some of these groups, like one of them. This is, these are the groups that, uh, uh, that Ben Gavir uh, and Smotrich and others belong to, the Temple Mount groups, which advocate the destruction of Al-Aqsa. And they, the day before, you could look at their communications, they have called for mass stormings throughout the week-long Passover, you could see right. on video Ben Gavir telling telling them, "Go there, take over Al Aqsa." I mean, he he is like right. inciting right. them and so forth, and that's why you had that so called clashes that happened. Right, 
So let me ask you a question, Jamal. What would happen in the United States if the U.S. military or a police force raided uh, a Catholic church during Easter and arrested, shot people, shot rubber bullets, and uh, put people face down? Do you think that would make the news in any way, shape, form? I mean, just we need to play this kind of uh this kind of imaginative kind of construction because people lose sight of the fact that these were religious worshipers during a extremely holy month and the third holiest month of the year being uh attacked by a, mil- a state military and if you use that same structure and you apply it to any other country in the world Jamal it would call for international condemnation and we saw silence in the Western media about this. We saw some, as you well, said, the silence. They, they they basically uh, distort the story. Well, they has, the, they they did state they supported the Israeli narrative of some and they don't, and they don't give it context. Like why would Palestinians, for example, uh, protect the mosque? They don't tell well, you, for example, that Palestinians <laughs> fear that this is the first step to basically to lay the groundwork for the most to be divided. This is the first right. step. Not even, I'm not even talking about the right. destruction because that's the ultimate goal for this group movement. But basically they want to divide it between Muslims and Jews, similar to how the Ibrahimi mosque in Hebron was divided in the 1990s. And what was the trigger point to divide the Ibrahimi mosque was the massacre by the infamous yeah. massacre of Baruch Goldstein, the the American from Terrorist. Brooklyn, New York, who went there and massacred Palestinians, and then they shut down the mosque. They took that. That was a pretext. They shut down the mosque for a few days, and then later on, they put barricades, and now they divided it into two sections, and that is the plan. I mean, that's maybe the Israeli government plan, but the current Israeli government a plan that goes above and beyond this. I think they don't want to even divide it. They want to destroy it. When well, they want to take you, it over. They want to destroy it and take it over. Yeah, they want to take see, over the space. You see Smotrich posting the uh, map of so-called Greater Israel, which stretches all over historic Palestine, including Jordan, including parts of Syria and Lebanon. And you see them taking pictures of the Wailing Wall and canceling the picture of the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque. Yeah, and it's, it's unbelievable. And on top of it, Jamal, we, we don't have time to talk about this, but today, Smotrich and Ben Gavir are leading uh, uh, you know, tens of thousands of illegal colonial settlers to an evacuated illegal colonial settlement, calling on the uh, Netanyahu government to repopulate you know, historic Palestine Repopulate the West Bank with illegal colonial settlers. They're they're protesting right now, Jamal, as we speak. Yeah, so the situation. I, I, yeah, I just want to end and and this because we want to move to other things. But but just you know, uh, we're not even midway in Ramadan. Last exactly. year, 170 people were wounded because of this action. More right. than 300 uh, Palestinians were arrested in raids uh, during Ramadan on mosques. And 
in May 2021, hundreds of Palestinians were injured after Israeli forces stormed the compound and attacked worshippers during Ramadan. The same story. This led to also further incursions into, into uh, occupied East Jerusalem, uh, for example, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which sparked a major Israeli assault on besieged Gaza, That's killing right. 256 Palestinians. Many of them were uh, women and children. So they just repeat the same thing, and then people But, act so surprised. Oh, what, what, what's going on? But it's going. It's headed in the same direction, Jamal. And the world is looking away. The world is giving the apartheid state yet another pass. We we're in a crisis situation again. Crisis after crisis, you know, uh, of this situation and a ratcheting up of the aggression of the apartheid state against you know worshippers. So I'm afraid that things, you know, as you said, it's halfway towards Ramadan. We had uh, Easter this last Sunday in Jerusalem. We have the Orthodox Easter coming up this Sunday. Things are very, very bad right now. It, things are bad in Palestine in general, Jamal, but right now because of the confluence of Easter and Ramadan at the same time, things are especially bad. I anticipate when we're on the when we're you know broadcasting next week, we're going to have more bad news. From, from this situation. Well, I can guarantee you the more bad news, if nothing happens at Al-Aqsa Mosque, is that Christians will be prevented from going into Jerusalem, from Bethlehem into Jerusalem. Exactly. No, and exactly. from other places in the in, in the West Bank, because it happens every year, or they allow only a fraction of them and say, look, there is freedom of religion practice. But, well, yeah. uh, you know, and then they don't Jewish, show you, they don't yeah. show you the checkpoint at uh, Bethlehem where thousands of Plas Christian Palestinians are trying to go to pray at, uh, you know, for the festivities at the sepulcher. I mean, they shut down. Listen, they shut down the entire old city. Actually, I've been there. I've seen it. You have right. to have, uh, you know, only, only a small fraction of people can go in to partake in, in these festivities. So this, anyway, uh, we're talking about this and, and, At the same time, this is the 75th anniversary of the Der uh, Yassine massacre, where 75 years ago, just Zionist militias tore through Palestinian villages, massacring the villages and expelling those who remained alive to clear the, the way for the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, an estimated 15,000 Palestinians were killed and some 750,000 Uh, were pushed out of their homes to live as uh, refugees in other parts of Palestine or neighboring uh, countries. Yeah, Jamal, it's it's hard to hard to believe that it's been 75 years. There are still some, a few, a handful of survivors from that time 75 years ago, obviously mostly children at the time who have grown up. But it's a scar on the consciousness of Palestinians all over the world, that so many people were massacred in their homes. And it was the start of the kind of atrocious uh, Nakba uh, that, that occurred, you know, from that time on for the following number of months and years where that number of Palestinians was expelled. It's hard to believe, Jamal, that it's been 75 years and the pain is still there. The pain is still there. And and more and more we find out we find out about this massacre. How on April 9, 1948, uh, just basically weeks before the creation of the state of Israel, 
members of the Irgun and Stern gang Zionist militias attacked the village of, uh, of Der Yassin, killing 107 Palestinians. Just many of those people slaughtered uh, from those who were tied to trees and burned to death to those lined up against a wall and shot by submachine guns were women, children, and elderly. And then and many of them were thrown in, in, in inside a well. And so, so you know, uh, history seems to be repeating itself yes. in a way. And that's why they say why Palestinians are so frustrated. Why are, uh, why are they so worried? When you remember what happened 75 years ago, and it's still ongoing. And, uh, you know, we're seeing it on a daily basis. And it's important, like like people think, why was it so important, that massacre? Why does it matter to this day? Well, it matters to this day for all the reasons we've just said. This is the historical connection between 75 years ago, Jamal, and the massacre of Palestinians and the displacement of Palestinians to where we are today. There's an uninterrupted line from Der Yassin to where we are today. And it keeps getting worse. And that's why the media representation of what's happening now is so disgusting, because you're not hearing about Der Yassin. You're hearing about clashes. And what we're going to do is continue to remember those who, who perish at the hands of these militia and those uh, whose memory that will, you know, will be with us forever, obviously. We're, so, we're... so here is the thing about that. Just first, the Zionists tried to deny it, and they denied it for many years. And then the revisionist Zionists, they said, they started to say that this was, oh, a mistake, that this happened. And and I just want to answer, because I took this quote and from Elan Pape, uh, you know, who, yeah. who wrote the the famous book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, because they were saying, and he said, Der Yassin was no mistake, you know, there was no mistake. Depopulation, uh, I'm sorry, depopulating Palestine was not a consequential war event, but a carefully planned strategy, otherwise known as Plan Dalit, which was authorized by the Israeli leader at the time, Ben-Gurion, in March 1948, uh, Pape, he wrote that in his book, Operation Nachson was, in fact, the first step in the plan. So this was carefully planned, and that's why when people look at it and they see what's happening at Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa and they see what's happening at Sheikh Jarrah, and they see what's happening in uh, uh, Hebron, and they say, you know, that's why when Palestinians, you ask them, they say, yeah, the ethnic cleansing has never stopped. That's right. And that that's why our last uh, topic is also very important because, you know, Jamal, last week we reported on a change among Democrats. Their sentiment is becoming increasingly more Palestinian, pro-Palestinian. So what a surprise about APAC, who has traditionally, Jamal, as you know, focused its attention on uh, right-wing extremists, Republicans, and uh more conservative elements of Congress, it seems like APAC is beginning to see a different light. Well, definitely. I mean, APAC, and, and when we, talk, we think about APAC, you also you have to think about they have now weaponized uh, its super PAC, United Democracy Project, to be basically so we don't get defe- deceived because many people say, well, APAC really... It's an advocacy group, but they don't uh, contribute to pro- to 
elections. They don't put money. So now that's not the case. So that's it's all out in the uh, open. They have their super PAC, and and with that super PAC, they are spending millions of dollars on misleading attack ads, often accusing Democrats and 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 the recent thing, like for example, most recently Summer Lee and Jessica Cineros and Nina Turner and Andy Levine and Donna Edwards and others of uh, insufficient, they change their tactic. They don't say, they no longer say, oh, they're not pro-Israel, they're anti-Israel, which was the case, like they label you or even being an anti-Semite. Now what they're saying to you, that you are not loyal to the Democratic Party. You're 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 not loyal enough. Exactly. And that's how they go after you. Well, in the case of the last, the first case I've mentioned, uh, uh, Summer Lee, they couldn't beat her, you know. Right. So it doesn't mean that all that money that they are spending, the millions of dollars that they're spending, is uh, working. And then you've mentioned that briefly is they're now suffering from this anxiety attack because the recent polls, the Gallup poll, shows that especially young Democrats support the Palestinian cause and no longer support Israel. So they're panicking. So they don't know where to throw their money, which direction they should, you know, put it and concentrate right. it on. And, they're, you know and, who, they're, and with that, they're becoming very vicious at the same time. Right. And do you know who their new poster child is for Democrats promoting pro-Israel, uh, more pro-Israel stances? Can you guess? I don't who have is- to. I don't, I don't have to guess far. <laughs> Does Do you want to guess Jeffrey, who, Jeffrey's? <laughs> guess, guess, guess who their poster child is? Who they've? Well, yeah, there's Hakeem Jeffries, of course. Hakeem Jeffries, of course, he's the he's the head he, of he's the minority the, leader. Minor, yeah, but yeah, they've exactly. also they've also brought in Andrew Cuomo to to help. Oh with yeah, the yeah, we, we to, spoke exactly. Yeah, I I actually didn't go there because I think he's insignificant and he's a big loser. And, and not to mention that uh, his sexual troubles that he's, they're trying to whitewash for him. But, but, but this and is the how lawsuits. they re- Right. But this is how they rehabilitate uh, well, politicians. Well, I then I congratulate them wholeheartedly. <laughs> if he's their poster child, Let someone who it. has been accused of rape and sexual harassment, and lost his their, position. And, and lost, lost his position. They were going to bring him back, and he is the champion of their cause. Good luck. Good luck. And we, we say good luck to Andrew Cuomo and Hakeem Jeffries for supporting a lost cause and going against the majority of what uh, young Democrats believe in these days. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Mm-hmm.